0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. William M. Bowden is a distinguished scholar at the Strauss Center for International Security and Law, and he's also an assistant professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. He's also a non-resident fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Previously, he served as senior director for strategic planning at the National Security Council at the White House. Dr. Imboden worked at the Department of State as a member of the policy planning staff and as special advisor in the Office of International Religious Freedom. He's worked as a staff member in both the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. He holds his Ph.D. and M.A. degrees in history from Yale University and his baccalaureate from Stanford University. He's the author of the book, Religion and American Foreign Policy, 1945 to 1960, The Soul of Containment. And we're about to have one of those conversations you can only have with someone who has immersed himself in this material with the rich background of his own personal experience. Will, how did you find yourself attracted to the question of uh, what was missing in American foreign policy and its understanding during the Cold War?
1: You know, there were actually two s- separate strains that both led me to uh, to the questions that animate this book. The first was, before starting graduate school in history at Yale, I worked on Capitol Hill for several years, and I saw a number of members of Congress who had very strong personal faith commitments. and. Those faith commitments seemed to shape their understanding of foreign policy, um, and I saw you know a lot of religious groups who were active on Capitol Hill trying to influence American foreign policy as well and so that just put some questions in my mind if, in what was then the present day uh, religious motivations were shaping American foreign policy was that also the case in the past and then the second more historical line that shaped my set of questions that turned turned into this book was. The the perpetual puzzle: Why was the Cold War fought? Because we assume now, in retrospect, that there was an inevitability to the Cold War. But if we remember, you know, in 1945, at the end of World War II, the last thing that the American people or certainly American government wanted was yet another worldwide conflict. You know, we were just the world was just coming out of the worst carnage in, in human history, um, and there was hopes for world peace from the United Nations and the Soviet Union had been our ally and fighting against the, the Nazis. And so, you know, in the minds of most policymakers, the last thing anyone wanted in 1945 was yet another global conflict. Yet within one to two years, 1946 or 47, we find ourselves once again in this global standoff against the, the Soviet Union and what became the Cold War. And so the historical puzzle of what caused that. And when I looked at all the uh, prevailing historiography on the early Cold War, we saw all sorts of Different, uh, suggestions of motivations, whether it was, uh, American desire for, uh, to expand capitalism, whether it was, uh, Soviet desire to expand communism, whether it was just the standoff between two great powers and, you know, the realist argument that great powers will inevitably conflict with each other. But what all those arguments seemed to completely leave out was the religious factor. And yet, as I looked through the, uh, you know, the public and private statements of most American leaders at the time, very much at the forefront of their minds was, uh, you know, we've got to resist communism because it's atheistic, and furthermore, a sense that uh, God was calling the United States as a powerful nation to uh, exercise its power responsibly in in the world. So it was those two uh, different uh, influences, you know, the present-day work on Capitol Hill, and then the historical question of what caused the Cold War that that, uh, caused me to dive into this book.
0: Well, the book is actually the product, of course, of your uh, Ph.D. work at Yale University. And uh, you write, uh, just in terms of, uh, of introducing this, uh, this very significant project, that you came to this because as you looked at the consideration of the Cold War in contemporary historical scholarship, there was one thing missing, and that one thing was the theological or religious dimension uh, of the Cold War. And so before we get to your argument about what was there, let me ask you, how could the entire field of, uh, of scholarship miss something so significant.
1: Yeah, that was the real puzzle for me, because, as you know, any time a graduate student starts on a dissertation, the first thing you're supposed to do is write on something that's never been written about before. And my understanding was the early Cold War years had already, there'd been hundreds of books already produced on that, and so I thought, will there really be anything else to say here? But as I looked at all the extant scholarship, none of it uh, touched on religion in any significant way. And I, you know, without impugning the motives of some of my fellow scholars out there, I, I did see that. Uh, a lot of historians, at least at the time, approached religion with more of a hermeneutic of suspicion, that there was a uh, a sense that any time a historical actor would claim religious motives, that those can't be the real motives. Surely the real motives are more materialistic or hyper-ideological or some sort of psychological projection, but uh, there was just a real uh, reluctance by most historians to take religious actors in the past on their own terms. Uh, And yet, as I you know, read so many of the primary source documents from uh, most American leaders at the time, I saw just these pervasive references to to God and to faith, and a, a sense of a sense of religious calling. And I thought, well. Uh, You know, an analogy I used is, let's say we found lots of presidential speeches and private correspondence saying things like, we need to fight the Cold War because of capitalism and because we want to promote markets overseas. Well, most historians, that'd be catnip for a lot of historians, they'd say, aha, we knew it, and they would take that at face value. Yet, when religion was invoked, there was more sense, well, that just can't be the real motivations. That can't be a factor. Surely it's something else. And so I think there was that extra hermeneutic of suspicion on the part of historians that was, in some ways blinding them to what seemed to me uh, some pretty self-evident and interesting uh, motivations.
0: We had some conversations back when you were doing this project at Yale, and uh, I remember those well. And uh, when I went back to read the book in preparation for this conversation, I have to tell you, there were still several things that shocked me. And uh, and one of them was uh, the actual text of the National Security Council document known as uh, NSC-68, because when I look at it, it it's, I think most Americans living today would be hard-pressed to believe that the official governing document of the United States government concerning the doctrine of atomic warfare was written in what can only be described as, as religious language.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was this was stunning to me. And, and I think what was especially telling about that document, which as uh, Cold War historians will tell you, is one of the two or three most important documents for American foreign policy in the Cold War. That document was classified and was not even released publicly until the mid-70s. And so for the more cynical scholars out there who would say, well, sure, American leaders would invoke God only to mobilize public opinion. Then when you say, actually, there's a very important classified document that gu- guided American foreign policy that was only supposed to be seen by policymakers at very top levels of government, that is invoking faith and is warning against the, you know, the, the materialistic, atheistic pretensions of the Soviet Union, that should at least be a clue that um, people really believed this, that this really was a, that the religious dimension really was an important animating influence on, on American national security policy.
0: Now, by the way, even as it seems that many historians miss the importance of this dimension, Joseph Stalin didn't. I, I love mm-hmm. the anecdote with which you begin the book, the uh, the admonition that Stalin gave to Andrei Gromyko when he assigned him to be the uh, the Soviet ambassador to the United States.
1: Yeah, this was I, – when I came across this uh, this anecdote in uh, another Soviet ambassador's memoirs, I, I thought, oh, my goodness, I found the introduction for the book here. And for your listeners, the anecdote is that when, uh, when Stalin assigned – Uh, Gromyko to be his ambassador to the U.S., the main instruction Stalin gave Gromyko was he wanted him to attend church every Sunday in the U.S., and that may sound strange to us since we knew that Stalin and Gromyko were atheists, but Stalin told Gromyko, if you want to understand America, if you want to understand the values uh, of, of the United States and the motivations of the American people, you have to go to church uh, every, every, every Sunday. So I thought that was just deliciously revealing.
0: Oh, I should say. Now, the cover of your book by Cambridge University Press has four figures on it. And uh, they are uh, juxtaposed uh, in terms of this uh, this cover. And they are Harry Truman, Billy Graham, Reinhold Niebuhr, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Yes. And uh, you look at this and you could say, well, those are four of the most significant and influential figures in America or actually for the world stage of the second half of the 20th century. But you're arguing that something far more profound actually links them together. What is that?
1: Yeah, well, the, the reason I chose those four figures is they, for as uh, for as diverse as they were, you know, a Democrat and a Republican, an Evangelical Protestant uh, Billy Graham, and then a, a liberal Protestant Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, they uh, they together shared this spiritual theological worldview that the Cold War was a religious war, that the United States had a um, a, a divine calling to engage in it, and that the Soviet Union was uh, a threatening adversary, not just because of its totalitarianism, but because of its atheism.
0: When I read Nancy Gibbs' book, The President's Club, uh, late last year, and uh, you may recall that uh, that she wrote that book about the the political lives of former presidents, one of the things that's most striking in that is how much Truman disliked Eisenhower and how much Eisenhower disliked Truman. And yet by the time you finish your book, it's clear in terms of their foreign policy and their understanding of how uh, how faith functioned uh, in terms of america 's foreign policy in the cold war there 's an amazing continuity
1: yeah there there really is and a an initial clue for me to look for that was uh, you know diplomatic historians had enjoyed for a while pointing out the paradox that. Eisenhower, in the 1952 campaign, had largely campaigned against Truman's foreign policy, saying, you know, Truman's been a bad foreign policy president, he's got us bogged down in this war in Korea, he's pursuing this containment policy that is acquiescing in, in Soviet domination. Yet once Eisenhower becomes president, he essentially pursues a lot of the main strategic principles of the Truman foreign policy. So mindful of that dynamic, I was intrigued to see that a very similar thing took place with the... Um, Sort of the, the civil religious dimension of the, of the Cold War that Eisenhower, even though he had, uh, you, know, uh, you know, very little time for Truman and, and a lot of contempt for Truman, uh, essentially adopted the, the civil religious framework that Truman had, had created. And Eisenhower further, further expanded and institutionalized it. So there's a lot more continuity between the two, even though they would not have, neither would have wanted to admit it at the time.
0: In terms of your book, I I think one of the things that would surprise many American evangelicals today and perhaps it would be even more shocking to more secular Americans is the extent to which the Protestant uh, mainstream and especially the elite in American mainline Protestantism in the second half of the the, uh, 20th century had a foreign policy. They were deeply invested in foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy was uh, very much a part of their concern and of their political activism. Kind of spell that out for us and, and show us the contours of, of American Protestantism, especially the level of the leadership in the last half of the 20th century.
1: Sure. Yeah, this was uh, also, a, as you know, a very prominent theme in the book. And what uh, what really seemed to be taking place is uh, at the end of World War II, m- most American Protestant leaders, especially uh, especially mainline Protestants, their overriding preoccupation was foreign policy. They um, they thought that the american the allied victory in world war II, had finally given an opportunity for ushering in you know their own eschatological vision of uh, of of you know a a post millennial peace um here, here on Earth, through the United Nations, through uh, American power and, and American b- benevolence, it's really this this utopian utopian vision. Uh, and this was also the the zenith, I think, of the American Protestant establishment's uh, cultural influence in the United States as well. You know, church influence, uh, church attendance is getting to record highs. Uh, you know, this when the United States really is culturally a Protestant nation. But uh, very soon thereafter. Um, Uh, disputes arise within uh, the American Protestant leadership over precisely what that foreign policy should be. Uh, Some of them wanted uh, peace and harmony and coexistence with the Soviet Union and to abolish uh, you know, all atomic weapons. Others, such as Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, started to take, even though they shared the liberal theology of mainline Protestantism, took a more conservative or assertive line on foreign policy, saying, no, communism really is a threat. The United States needs to maintain its, uh, its atomic weapons and forcefully confront uh, confront, the, confront the Soviets. Then in the midst of that, as, as you know, well know, is when uh, neo-evangelicalism comes on the scene and almost becomes this third voice within the pantheon of American
0: Protestantism. But before we get there, there was a major divide on the mainline Protestant side between those who were more idealists and, and those who were realists. And uh, that becomes also, uh, I, I would say, an ongoing issue that, that reflected the same kind of, of split on the secular side in government.
1: Yeah, this is uh, really interesting. How uh, some of these uh, ecclesiastical divisions mirror the the foreign policy divisions that are uh, that they go, go on within government. Because uh, a number of the mainline Protestant bodies, especially the the National Council of Churches and some of its uh, subdivisions and denominational heads, uh, took again a much more what we might call liberal line on on foreign policy, and this was. Partly driven by their theological convictions, a fairly, uh, fairly low low view of sin, um, a low view of national national identity, and a very idealistic hope for uh, you know, really a, a almost a, a utopia to come in through the United Nations. And so the last thing they wanted was uh, another conflict. Related to this also was you know, most of these leaders certainly weren't communists themselves, uh, but they they were not as critical of the Soviet Union and of Soviet communism. They regarded it as maybe unfortunate or distasteful, but they appreciated what they saw as some of communism's efforts to bring in social justice. Um, um, they uh, they were, uh, you know, less less critical of Soviet communism, whereas other liberal Protestants uh, were particularly led by Reinhold Niebuhr, who had a somewhat higher view of of sin, at least in a, in a corporate sense, uh, and a somewhat more uh, confident uh, belief in American exceptionalism said, no, communism is very bad. This is a, a false idol. Uh, it needs to be confronted. We'll never be able to have a utopia in in the world. The United Nations is necessary but flawed. Let's not t- put too many hopes in the United Nations. Let's support a robust American national security posture, and let's try to, try to win this Cold War. So it was a, a real divide uh, that was most manifestly a political divide that had those theological undertones.
0: In terms of the theological layout here, uh, one of the things that you make very clear in your book is that American foreign policy adopted a theology of sorts. And as a matter of fact, in one haunting line in your book, you say it was a a theology that Americans would have been shocked to have understood was developed in the White House.
1: Yeah, this was uh, also very interesting from from the political side that um American presidents especially Truman and Eisenhower but also uh, other leaders such as Secretary of State John Foster Dulles uh because they saw the cold war as a religious conflict they wanted to mobilize the uh, you know religious Americans behind this and yet they found it very frustrating that American Protestants especially were so divided amongst each other and could not unite behind the American Cold War platform. And so uh, and the related dimension to this is Truman and Eisenhower wanted to make this um, this Cold war theology more religiously inclusive, they especially wanted to bring Catholics and Jews in to this is you know where will herberg 's classic uh, Protestant Catholic Jew comes out of this out of this milieu and so Truman and Eisenhower realized we just can 't work with these church groups because they 're bickering with each other too much, and so we are going to, as American presidents, take it on ourselves to craft a new uh, new civil religion that believes in God, that believes in some sense of divine providence, that believes that human rights and freedoms are endowed by a creator. Uh, it's essentially the same natural theology you find at the American founding. It's doctrinally minimalist. Uh, it certainly uh, would not embrace a lot of the you know, p- particular uh, Orthodox confessions of creedal Christianity, uh, but it's more accessible to Americans of, of, of different faiths. And so the White House kind of creates its own new civil religion for these purposes in, in the
0: Cold War. So in order to get America ready for the challenge of the Cold War and in in order to make clear not only internally but quite clearly in public the distinctions between uh, the American project and the threat of communism, especially Soviet communism, a form of civil religion was explicitly uh, preached uh, and, and communicated by the American government and by the Truman and Eisenhower administrations and uh, in one sense i guess you could say it was the basic distinction between what truman called godless communism and uh, and what you acknowledge is really a, a banal protestant uh, christianity
1: yeah. yeah exactly i mean the um uh, you know even though uh, for people of you know very strong religious religious faith and you know as you know i 'm certainly con- uh, consider myself a very very committed practicing christian uh, this civil religion it 's going to appear to us as very watered down and, and banal but just thinking of it as a historical matter, um, it was still very different from the materialism and atheism that the Soviet Absolutely. Union was, was pushing and so uh, as a historical factor as a uh, as a factor factor in foreign policy, uh, there was some amount of teeth to this to to this civil, civil religion, and by and large, the American people, uh, for the most part, seem to be on, on board with it as well. I mean, they this reflected their own uh, understanding of of their nation's role role in the world and why why they also objected to communism. Well,
0: I think American evangelicals, when they hear the term civil religion, know they're supposed to respond to it with kind of an allergic horror because we recognize mm-hmm. that it is not authentic biblical Christianity. At the same time, I, I think we have to acknowledge the incredible social utility of civil religion and, in one sense, the indispensability of it to the American experiment. But I think even Americans who understand that, even evangelicals who know that, uh, that American leaders uh, do talk this way, they'd be shocked by the kind of language used by American presidents. And, 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 in fact, as an example, you go back to October the 27th, 1941, in a radio address given by President Roosevelt uh, when he said, uh, speaking of the, of the Nazi threat, He said, in the place of the churches of our civilization, there is to be set up an international Nazi church, a church which will be served by orators sent out by the Nazi government. In the place of the Bible, the words of Mein Kampf will be imposed and enforced as holy writ. And in the place of the cross of Christ will be put two symbols, the swastika and the naked sword. A god of blood and iron will take the place of the god of love and mercy. And that may be civil religion, but that is theological content, inescapably so.
1: Yeah, and it's all the more remarkable that it's coming from President Franklin Roosevelt, who we usually don't think of as uh, someone using using such categories. I mean, I, I, as a thought experiment, it might be uh, fun to read that quote at a conference of scholars sometime but not tell anyone who it came from and ask, you know, ask, who do you think said this? They uh, might say, was that Billy Graham or Carl McIntyre? And no, that was Frank, that was President Franklin Roosevelt. So. Um, yeah. So even uh, even our presidents during this era, you know, most of whom would not have been, you know, conservative evangelical Protestants in our understanding of the term theologically, they did have, I think, some perceptive insights into some of the theological content of the of the conflict. I guess we could say um, these, you know these minimal beliefs they had were certainly at a minimum ones that, uh, you know, conservative evangelicals such as us could, could embrace. We would just go much further in our, in our own doctrinal pr- pr- particulars. But things such as that, you know, God created the, the world, that there is a, a divine authorship to history, that human rights and freedoms are endowed by our Creator, uh, that, uh, you know, because we are created in, in, in God's image, um, that the state should not be an idol the way that that uh, Soviet communism was, was making the state. Those things as theological tenets, uh, I think we could, we,
0: could cer- we could certainly affirm. Even when it comes to the range of political and current issues, many people just assume that if you look at foreign policy, you're looking at the one dimension that is least likely to have theological content and uh, theological engagement. William Bowden's work points to the falsity of that assumption and to the fact that not only was foreign policy richly theological, that theology came from the White House of all places, meaning that the intersection of faith and politics, of theology and current events, even of foreign policy in the Cold War, is far more than meets the eye, and in the case of America's political memory, a great deal more than most Americans either remember or ever knew. This is not one of the major points of your book, but it's necessary to the content of your book. It is, uh, it is nonetheless something I think would be shocking again to many contemporary readers, and that is the influence of mainline Protestant leaders in the highest echelons of the American government. And uh, when we talk about the, uh, the Protestant mainstream, we often forget just how mainstream it was, how, how mainline the influence was. How uh, major theologians uh, were regular visitors uh, into the halls of power in Washington, and how many of the denominations that have been in theological collapse and numerical decline for the better part of the last uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, even more. Uh, If you go back to the end of World War II, they were in the driver's seat of American Christianity
1: yeah they this really was the protestant establishment in full force not in terms not only in terms of the the cultural cachet it had but as you said as a real force in the in the quarters of power i mean uh you know the heads of protestant uh, denominations were regularly meeting with senators with the secretary of state with uh, with the president president himself and not just these were not just you know uh uh you know uh, photo ops and you know uh, happy handshakes uh, for the political purposes these were in depth behind the scenes meetings and discussions on what should american foreign policy be uh, so it was it was really really remarkable i think one figure who especially exemplifies this was edward elson who was the pastor of national presbyterian uh, eisenhower president eisenhower's church and as you may recall from the book eisenhower at one point commissions his pastor edward elson to do about a month of quiet secret shuttle diplomacy throughout the Middle East, uh, meeting with, you know, the king of Saudi Arabia, with heads of state in the Middle East, trying to line up these different Arab nations um, on the side of the United States in the Cold War. Uh, So usually a president will send his secretary of state or national security advisor for those kind of missions. But, you know, President Eisenhower sent his pastor.
0: Yeah, I have to tell you, just as a little personal anecdote, that the first time I visited Washington, D.C., I was a nine-year-old boy, and went to visit uh, Paul Rogers, Congressman Paul Rogers, who was uh, my uh, Florida congressman, and I can still remember sitting there with my parents, and he gave me a uh, a collection of prayers by Edward Elson, uh, delivered, and he was chaplain of the Senate. I still have that book in my library, signed by Paul Rogers and Edward Elson, and There's a figure from history coming alive all of a sudden, and he was the man who actually baptized uh, Dwight David Eisenhower uh, into Christianity when Eisenhower was a president, the only president to be baptized while in office.
1: Yeah, that in and of itself was a was a really remarkable story, and uh, I'll tell you one anecdote related to Eisenhower's baptism that I didn't I didn't put into the book. I wish wish I would have. But when I was going through the um, the papers uh, at the Eisenhower li- Library, the papers related to Eisenhower's membership in National Presbyterian, came across this fascinating exchange of letters between pastor reverend Ellison and president eisenhower where when eisenhower told Ellison, you know reverend elson i'd like to become a member of national presbyterian the two things that elson told eisenhower well mr president we'd love to have you but you'll need to be baptized and you'll need to attend a five-hour membership class that we require of everybody who wants to join national presbyterian and eisenhower to his credit participated in that class, sat through a five-hour, I think they had to do a couple sessions, membership class before he was allowed to join the church. And I think, you know, to shift into a normative uh, uh, mode here for a second, I think that's a pretty compelling picture of, you know, the most powerful person in the world still submitting to the authority of a a local church and still making the time to sit through the membership class.
0: Absolutely. A, A thing that, again, an insight that would shock many people in terms of the contemporary political context, I want to ask you about some individuals because uh, even as you tell a narrative uh, and do some just incredible political and intellectual analysis uh, in your book, uh, the people are so central to the story. So let me just throw out a few and I want to ask you to talk about them. John Foster Dulles.
1: Yeah, Dulles uh, again a fascinating and often really misunderstood uh, figure in, in in American history. Uh, he came from a long line of uh both presbyterian clergy and missionaries and also uh dip, diplomats. Um and those those two strains come come together in him where he had a uh, again you know theologically he's a very very liberal liberal protestant but still a very active one. He was also a member of National Presbyterian as was as was President President Eisenhower and uh before becoming Secretary of State, Dulles had been, um, you know, a, an active leader in the National Council of Churches, helping to design their plan for the United Nations, uh, doing a lot of ecumenical work with. Uh, Protestant leaders in in Europe and then and then the United States, and he was earlier seen as just this sort of purely lofty, idealistic uh, Protestant. And so once he becomes Secretary of State and adopts a you know fairly stern line against communism, both rhetorically and in his policies. It was very upsetting to some of his former clerical colleagues in the National Council of Churches, who thought that he had, uh, you know, gone off the reservation, had had abandoned the old faith, and and yet for him, I argue, there's a real continuity there. That Dulles always had a strong spiritual sense of his calling, of what he thought America's role in the world was. It's just that once he took the office of Secretary of State, uh, he had to apply more diplomatic dip, diplomatic teeth to that, and it was uh, sort of, you know, less less appealing to some of his uh, former colleagues in the in the church the church bureaucracy.
0: So let's talk about John Foster Dulles and the fact that you didn't, in your book, indicate one thing I was just sure was going to show up somewhere, and that is, is that even as you tell the story, that the one thing that united uh, mainline and evangelical Christians uh, in in terms of uh, of this period was a great antipathy to the Roman Catholic Church and and fear of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, and both uh, determined by foreign policy to try to limit the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. You somehow failed to mention that John Foster Dulles, one of the architects of that policy, United States Secretary of State, ended up with a son who became a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, Avery Dulles. So um, yeah, and I, I that was one of those things. That, looking back, if I were to rewrite the book, I uh, you know I think it would have been a great anecdote to spend spend some more time on, because I did come across some really interesting correspondence between uh, you know John Foster Dulles and his son Avery when Avery had converted. I believe as well he was an undergrad at, at Harvard, and this caused some real consternation in the family because in the public mind, to be a Dulles was to be a Presbyterian, almost in the way that. These days, to be a Kennedy is to be a Catholic, and so for a Dulles like Avery Dulles to convert to Catholicism, um, then to you know join join the priesthood was was a real shock to the And system, to become
0: a you can add to that and to become a Jesuit.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, um, but uh, you know, my understanding is that uh, his, there there was a, a reconciliation between father and son, and uh, that it did not turn into an irreparable uh, irreparable breach there, which uh, for for familial relations, I think, is a, a, a
0: appreciative thing. But you know, a lot of people just just can't imagine a time when the American political elite would be such a small group of uh, of a few families, and represented, for instance, by a, a relatively few schools. Uh, uh, and uh, you certainly had that demonstrated in your book. It's implicit virtually in every chapter. But you not only had John Foster Dulles as secretary of state. You had his brother Alan Dulles as the first director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, you had uh, John Foster Dulles having two relatively close relatives who had also both been the United States secretary of state. Mm-hmm. A- and you look at that and you realize uh, th- 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 this is a different America than we know now. Uh, uh, there has been a huge democratization of American political culture. I think that must be kind of tantamount to a second Jacksonian age from the time you depict mm-hmm. in this book.
1: No, that's. I think that's a very evocative way to put it, a second Jacksonian age. Yeah, because at at the time, in, in, the, in these decades, uh, pretty much – Every member of the American leadership in Washington had attended – most of them had gone to Groton for high school and had gone to Harvard or Yale or or Princeton for their schooling. They'd known each other. They'd done their summer vacations together. They'd known each other for for generations. They worked at the same Wall Street investment banking or uh, Manhattan law firms. Uh, It it was – you know the The entire axis of influence in and in leadership in the United States was really confined to that boston new york washington d c quarter and to a few select educational institutions
0: and I think the other thing you you also uh, deal with implicitly here is the fact that it was a protestant establishment it was a it was an almost unilaterally protestant establishment uh, you do have some some figures such as morgenthal showing up in, in terms of Jewish representation but When you look at someone like uh, Joseph Kennedy as uh, a Roman Catholic appointed to the Court of St. James as the American ambassador to Great Britain, you really are looking at an exception.
1: Oh yeah, I mean the it's it, you know Kennedy, and then the one other exception who proves the rule are, are James Forrestal, the you know very troubled yes. first Secretary of Defense, who was also also Roman Catholic, and he had a number of personal demons to go along with his genius. But arguably, I don't want to overdetermine this, but one of those might have been a sense of never quite fitting in because of, in, in part, because of his Catholicism. And as you also alluded earlier, but what was a real revelation to me in doing the historical research on this is, for all of the theological differences uh, which were considerable. Between, say, evangelical Protestants and the liberal Protestants, the one thing that they did seem to agree on was they didn't want the, uh, the was, was this anti-Catholicism. They didn't want the Catholics running the country, um, and this was, of course, pre-Vatican II, um, and when there was still a a sense that uh, I think an unfair one, but that Catholics can't really be good, loyal American citizens, that they're going to be taking their their orders from the from the Pope. Um, the the one I, you might recall the anecdote from the book that was, was I thought was revealing was when there was the internal uh, memos from a couple of leaders at the National Association of Evangelicals in I mean yes. 1951 or 52 when McCarthy McCarthyism is first coming to the fore and the question is what do we make of this McCarthy guy and it, the, the answer came back well it's mixed on the one hand the good news is he seems to be going after communists in the State Department but he's replacing those communists with Catholics and that's just about as bad so
0: <laughs> I but, you know. That- I- I I have to push back just a little bit and say that the reason many Protestants believed that a Roman Catholic would owe his primary allegiance to the pope is because that was not coincidentally the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church.
1: Yes, this is where uh you know I you know looking back we have to be very careful not to apply our own 21st century lens and understanding uh you know on on uh of of how things are today with uh, you know expect people of have, have followed, had that same understanding in the 40s and 50s because as I just mentioned in passing this was pre-Vatican 2 this was before the Catholic Church had really made its peace with democracy with some semblance of of religious liberty uh and so uh the you know magisterial teaching at the time did pose some you know some Difficult questions for uh, citizenship?
0: Well, absolutely. That's a different conversation, but one I think is nonetheless relevant because when you read your book, you realize these people understood a very different Catholicism even as they represented a very different Protestantism uh, mm-hmm. than exists today. And uh, for instance, someone else that doesn't show up in your book but could have, I'm sure. and 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 uh, I fully understand that uh, and this is a massive work of scholarship. but it, you know every work implies another one that needs to be done. And uh, so there would be an interesting story to be told of how Roman Catholics did enter this strain and now in terms of neoconservative thought are, have, have been central to American foreign policy ever since at least the 1970s. And you have to bring in a figure such as John Courtney Murray who on the Catholic side was just as influential as Niebuhr was on the Protestant side.
1: Yeah, and and as you said, I do wish I would have had more time to especially to, to explore Murray because the only real Catholic leaders who uh who do pop up in, in the in the book are, you know, Bishop uh Bishop Fulton Sheen, um uh, and then, of course, Card- Cardinal Spellman, and that's because they were so much more active, explicitly yes. in uh, in the Cold War politics of the day, and because American presidents saw them uh, saw, saw them as useful figures, both for courting the Catholic vote and for mobilizing Catholic anti-communism. But but the really interesting intellectual work at the time, of course, has been done by. John, John Courtney Murray, and then, you know, we, if we were to do a volume two of the book going into the 60s and 70s, we could then trace some of those strains in the life and thought of people like Richard Don Newhouse Absolutely. and Michael Novak and uh, some right. of the early neoconservatives.
0: I have to tell you, when I read a book like yours, uh, Will, one of the things I look for is, uh, is something I've never encountered before. And uh, that would be, for me, reading your book, Chapter 5, How in the World Did I Miss Senator H. Alexander Smith? I, what oh. a, an incredible figure, and, and I just have to ask you to tell his story, because it also brings in one of the least, I think, uh, understood but most important movements of the late 20th century, and that was moral rearmament.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But there's so much that can be said there. Uh, let me um, mention a couple of things first. One, if there are any... Uh, history graduate students who are listening to this podcast looking for a dissertation topic. I just did a chapter on Senator Smith but I think an entire dissertation could be written on him. His his diaries are still there in the Princeton archives. So a wonderful anecdote on how I came across this guy. I was, um, during my first year of graduate school, I was house and dog sitting for uh, for a professor and the electricity went out in the house and the next door neighbor was John Lewis Gaddis, the Cold War historian oh, one yeah. of my dissertation advisors. And so Professor Gaddis came over to, to me at the, the darkened house and said, Hey well why don't you come stay with me tonight since you know so you don't have to read by candlelight and so we started chatting and Professor Gaddis said, you tell me how the dissertation thinking is coming and this was the early stages. I said, Well, I'm wanting to do something on religion and American Cold War policy, but I'm still figuring out what would be some good case studies Professor Gaddis said, hold on a minute. He runs up to his attic, and he comes down a few minutes later, and he hands me this uh, faded yellow binder with some crinkly papers in it, and I open it, and he said... Back in the nineteen seventies, when I was working on another book, I came across this prayer journal of Senator Alexander Smith uh, from New Jersey in the Princeton Archives. And he said, Professor Gaddis said, I was just baffled by this. I didn't know what to make of it, so I never wrote on it, but I made some copies of it and I've and I have and you should really explore it. And so it was that's what what turned me on to it. So for your for your listeners, um, moral rearmament was this fascinating kind of spiritual political movement that's height was really uh in at 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 mid-century um it had started by an american uh liberal lutheran minister frank buckman uh who had done a done some time at oxford and wanted to form prayer groups of uh you know different emerging student leaders who he hoped could help bring uh new morality into business uh new morality into politics it's Theologically, it's very slippery and, and elusive, and you see a lot of different different flavors in it. But in the 40s and 50s, it was very influential on Capitol Hill. And one of the exercises that MRA, to use the acronym, would encourage senators and members of Congress to do is to have quote quiet time every morning. And this is, I think, as far as I can tell, where the phrase quiet time first comes from, where they would just be quiet for about a half hour and listen and wait for what they would think was guidance from God. Um, and then Senator Smith would dutifully write down in his prayer journal every day what he thought the guidance from God he was, was that he was he was receiving. And it could be things as mundane as stop smoking so many cigars or be more patient uh, towards my wife. Or it could be things like we really need to increase our aid package for uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists as they're fighting the, against the communists in the Chinese Civil War. And so it was you know, the most methodologically direct connection I've been able to find between uh, religious belief and practice and direct foreign policy outcomes.
0: You are a good writer, but the very best sentence in your book, I believe, is the first sentence of chapter five. I'm going to read it back to you. You write, Senator H. Alexander Smith began December the 3rd, 1948, in the same way that he began every other day. He rose early, washed, dressed, ate breakfast, and waited to hear from God.
1: Yeah, I, I I appreciate your uh, highlighting that uh, that that sentence. That was a fun one to write because I you know as a historian I always want to be have some amount of sympathy to the people I'm writing about to at least let them tell their stories on their own terms. And so I at, having spent weeks and weeks reading all of his prayer journals, you start to get a sense for how uh, what he does every morning when he wakes up and how he, how he approaches life. And so I at least. Uh, even if, you know, on my own personal theological commitments would be pretty different from some of the fuzziness of MRA, I wanted to at least be fair to Senator Smith and make sure his story could be told.
0: Well, you tell a story really well, and I think many Americans, for instance, don't know the ties between the Buckmanites, as they were known, and moral rearmament, and, uh, and for instance, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. In other words, this is a, this is a vast uh, cultural movement in America.
1: Oh, it really was, and then you know another one is I uh, don't really get into in the book, but up with people comes out of moral rearmament
0: absolutely, um, yeah, uh,
1: which was you know I know uh, it was especially you know especially predominant in the in the seventies and eighties
0: one of the other most shocking aspects of your book was the extent to which Truman, on the one hand to a lesser extent and Eisenhower to an even greater extent, inserted himself into. Uh, Christian discussions, uh, denominational uh, deliberations, and uh, and such things as the uh, National Council of Churches and World Council of Churches in order to uh, create a massive anti-communist wave.
1: Yeah, this was, again, really extraordinary for anyone who is interested in the relationship between religion and politics is, you know, when President Truman decides that as one of his central tenets of his Cold War policy that he wants to create a broad coalition of religious believers and especially religious leaders from around the world uh, who will be united in standing against communism, he decides that the the newly formed world council of churches would be a great vehicle for this. And so he, uh, and his emissary to the Vatican, Myron Taylor, try very strenuously months and months of arm twisting diplomacy to get the world council of churches to, to invite delegates from, from the Vatican. Uh, and the world council of churches is very resistant to this. And, uh, and eventually it carries a day saying, no, you know, we are a Protestant organization. We're going to allow a couple of representatives from the Russian Orthodox church, but that's, that's it. And they're only going to be there as, as observers. Uh, so, to see those sort of uh, intrusions uh, by you know, political leaders into the internal matters of religious bodies was really I think revealing about the what Truman and Eisenhower saw as the spiritual stakes of the of the Cold War and their frustrations with religious uh, organizations for not getting on board more. Uh, another example was when uh, Truman and his emissary Myron Taylor tried to get involved in the uh, the succession of, of the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople. I mean they essentially are trying to to pick the new leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, because the Kremlin had its preferred candidate, someone who would be closer to the Russian Orthodox Church and the communist line, and then the, the Americans had their preferred candidate, um, uh, a you know a Greek Orthodox patriarch who they thought would be much more anti-communist. And some of the documents on what exactly transpired there are still classified. I couldn't get them declassified, but connecting the dots, it does seem that the the American efforts won out, and the the, the more anti-communist patriarch was was installed.
0: Let's talk about the evangelical side for just a moment because uh, when the evangelicals showed up uh, trying to get to a White House meeting, the White House didn't even know what an evangelical was and uh, had to ask the Library of Congress to do some research to find out who these evangelicals were.
1: Yeah, uh, President Eisenhower uh, especially had, you know, a lot of his, his administration was staffed with, uh, you know, active liberal Protestants, and they either didn't know what an evangelical was or didn't like evangelicals, and so they have to, you know, ask the Library of Congress, who who are these people, and the... the um the, the word that comes back is uh, essentially something like, "Well, they're uh, they're you know a fundam- fundamentalist, but a little little more little more sophisticated than that, but they're effectively still still fundamentalists." So, and meanwhile, the National Association of Evangelicals is doing its best to gain entree to the halls of power in the ways that the National Council of Churches had had for decades.
0: But will let's be honest here: uh, either the reality or your presentation of many of these early evangelical engagements uh, don't look very flattering to evangelicals in terms of their basic. Uh, understanding of foreign policy
1: yeah there's um you know just as a historical matter the the early neo-evangelicals we could say, were probably much more sophisticated in their theology than they were in their foreign policy. This is partly because culturally they were outsiders. There were very few uh, evangelicals who were you know active in foreign policy positions in contrast to our earlier discussion about the the Protestant establishment, which really did dominate the the, the state department, uh, partly because evangelicalism itself as a relatively new movement. That is distinguishing itself from fundamentalism on the one side and then from liberal Protestantism on the other side was still forming a, a political identity but but here 's where I, I have to say I found Carl uh, Henry especially intriguing because you know, just about every early issue of Christianity today, from its beginning in the mid 1950s, Dr. Henry is writing editorials about foreign policy, and he was uh, had a more sophisticated understanding of foreign policy than I think a lot of ev- other evangelical leaders did, uh, and was you know, as in so many other ways, really at the at the, uh, at the at the cutting edge there.
0: Well, they also understood they were sitting on the the, the, the seismic uh, fault line of, of a massive worldview conflict. You go back to the very first issue of Christianity today. Funded, we have to admit, by uh, J. J. Howard Pugh, at least in part, to confront the communist menace, Uh, the very first editorial of what became the flagship periodical of American evangelicalism by Carl Henry was entitled, The Fragility of Freedom in the West
1: yeah that was that was that said it all to me. The fact that the the first editorial in the flagship journal is is a foreign policy editorial essentially and then um you know for a journal founded on on theological alliance was was very revealing about the the entire milieu that they were operating in and that 's where as as Dr. Henry started to you know find his editorial voice more and do a lot to form the evangelical political conscience if you will. Uh, you know, he, he had some pretty sophisticated insights on foreign policy. He had a fairly sophisticated critique of some of the uh, – what he saw as the uh, weaknesses and inadequacies of the United Nations. He, of course, was very firmly anti-communist, but it wasn't – it really descended into, into jingoism. Um, you know, he saw the need for a nuclear deterrence, but was uh, certainly not, uh, you know, very belligerent uh, 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 about that. Uh, he also had a, you know, strong sense of what, you know, what a mushroom cloud apocalypse could could look like. So, uh, he's appreciated rightly uh, in evangelical history for so many other influences. But I think we can look back and see him as, in contrast to some of his compatriots, comp- one of the, uh, you know, early sophisticated foreign policy thinkers in evangelicalism
0: as well. Well, he was uh, uh, to such an extent a mentor to me, and I, I feel uh, in, in order to, uh, to even say more about uh, the sophistication of his thought and, and, frankly, the independence of his thought on this issue, uh, it's not unfair to say that his departure against his own will from the editorship of Christianity Today was at least in part because of the nuances and sophistication of his, uh, his, his political engagement and, and specifically his understanding of foreign policy.
1: Yeah, and I think we saw an early uh, an early foreshadowing of that. You may recall the um, the letter I report on in the book, where uh, J. Howard Pugh, you know, the main benefactor of Christianity mm-hmm. Today, wrote that letter to Billy Graham, and you know, in nineteen fifty five or fifty six, expressing his worry that is Carl Henry Pink, you know, the slur at the time for meaning is he soft on communism? Is he a communist sympathizer? And of course, Billy Graham strongly defends uh, Doctor Henry, saying, "No, he is certainly not. Uh, he is certainly not pink." But uh, but even there, there were some of the pressures from J. Howard Pugh, who, you know, was very constructive in a lot of ways, but did not, uh, you know, took maybe more of a crude approach to, to some, of these, uh, some of these foreign policy questions and did not appreciate Dr. Henry's subtlety.
0: Well, uh, as someone who's followed J. Howard Pugh fairly closely and, and, and for some different reasons uh, in, in terms of, uh, of his own understanding, I think it's fair to say that he had a nearly Manichaean worldview. In which capitalism and freedom were on one side and communism and atheism were on the other side and he really didn't have any shades of gray in between the two. And and Henry did understand some shades of gray. He saw some problems with uh, some forms of capitalism and uh, as he said about communism, it's it's not wrong in its promises. It's idolatrous in its uh, belief that it can deliver them.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. Uh, J. Howard Pugh was was much more Manichaean and uh, just had had very little time for even you know uh, appreciating some of the some of the sophistications that Doctor Henry was bringing there. And I think part of that came from Doctor Henry's own very strong doctrine of sin and knowing that even if one may be largely on the right side of a geopolitical conflict, that doesn't mean that uh, that you know one one is perfect.
0: Just a couple of other questions I have to ask you. You deal with this explicitly in your book, but it would deserve to be an entirely different project. And as we're giving advice to doctoral students, here's another one to go after. American Christian and, in particular, Protestant foreign missions and foreign policy. Uh, There's an incredible linkage going on there. And just to mention one name that represents that link, it would be none other than Billy Graham's father-in-law, Nelson Bell.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and a number of other figures you know, such as Walter Walter Judd as well. But um, yeah, you know Nelson Bell, uh, you know, growing up in China, being a China missionary himself, and then uh, returning returning to the United States to you know take uh, help help run Christianity Today magazine, and throwing himself into a lot of the uh, early early debates over over Cold War Cold War foreign policy, and particularly bringing his insights from the mission field there, saying I I know what communism looks like. We saw some of the early uh, you know, some of the early Maoist rebels in in China, and they are, they are bad news. Um, and, the, and it's not in the United States' interest to let China be taken over by, by communism, as, as it eventually was.
0: You know, when I look at your book, I, I come to the last chapter, and it leads me to want to ask you a, a final question in terms of the narrative you tell What is the take-home right now? What what, what should be right now the ongoing intellectual concern of American evangelical Christians thinking about the very issues that you raise uh, in this very important work?
1: Uh, do you mean the intellectual concern as far as contemporary American foreign policy, or more as a, a matter of thinking about uh, a
0: scholarship? Thinking about today, thinking about uh, the challenges that we face in a, in, in a very complex world, with uh, terms such as asymmetrical warfare replacing this with a challenge of, of Islam. Just just thinking about American evangelicals, who for whom foreign policy and and America's engagement with the world can be a rather uh, abstract and 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 somewhat uh, distant concern. What would be your, your advice to today's generation of, of American evangelicals?
1: Well, um, and I appreciate the question, and of course, there's uh, always the risk of being too self-referential about other work, but if I can mention another article I just published related to this question, it's in the uh, the journal Fides et Historia, the Journal for Christian Historians, the, the current issue. Mm-hmm. And in that article, I wrote a review essay on Andrew Preston's new book, Surveying American Religion and Foreign Policy, for 400 years. And at the end of the essay, I try to offer a few normative reflections on how evangelicals might might think about uh, think about foreign policy. And I I start by wanting to situate foreign policy in uh, the framework of God's creation and our mandate to cultivate the creation and say that in some ways a lot of the the day-to-day work of foreign policy is really an international sense of making the trains run on time, making sure that the scaffolding of the international system, uh, trade routes, trade agreements, diplomatic agreements, uh, peace treaties between nations, making sure that those are preserved uh, so that in the you know, words of the New Testament, we can live peaceful and, and, and quiet lives under a, under, a, under, under just, just rulers. But there's also uh, there also, I think, is an irreducibly moral component that uh... you know with the uh... with the with the scriptural admonitions that that we are to be uh, pursuing justice um... with our understanding of human liberty grounded in human dignity as creatures created in the in the image of god uh, you know, I do think that uh, as for American evangelicals having ownership in over our, our democratic nation's for, foreign policy, that it can be appropriate to look for ways for American power and American resources to, to be used uh, to help extend you know, principles of justice and liberty, especially against oppression. But... You know, I always have to immediately follow that with putting on my Niebuhrian hat here uh, uh, for a moment of saying we need to caution ourselves against utopianism, that American foreign policy will not leverage the second coming, will not usher in uh, any sort of... Uh, you know, millennial eschaton—that uh, original sin is going to be a consistent reality of the of the world we live in—and we can perhaps accomplish some proximate justice in trying to live faithfully in our in our foreign policy. But should never um, should never delude ourselves that any sort of political action, especially American foreign policy, uh, can can leverage the kingdom of God.
0: Well said, and thanks for joining me today for thinking in public.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate
0: the chance to discuss these things. I was thrilled to have that conversation with William M. Bowden at the University of Texas at Austin and of course we talked about his book Religion and American Foreign Policy but what really makes the conversation with Will Imboden very interesting is the fact that here is a convictional Christian who was at the center of policy planning for the National Security Council who has been in the prominent and most elevated conversations about foreign policy in the realm of government and at the United States State Department. And now is at the University of Texas as a faculty member. We're talking about a man who has lived these issues and also in terms of his doctoral work at Yale University, took a very scholarly approach to understanding these issues. But as the conversation with Will Emboden makes very clear, this isn't just about the past. It's never just about American history. It's very much about the current intellectual responsibility of American evangelicals. The story of American Christianity in the second half of the 20th century is largely one of conflict and decline, If you look at mainline Protestantism, you look at those massive denominations, the United Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Disciples of Christ, especially the Episcopal Church, and and so many others, the Congregationalists, what you see is a declining cultural influence, so much so that by the time you reach the end of the 20th century, they are largely marginalized in terms of American public life, but not when it comes to the end of the Second World War, end of that period we now know as the Cold War. When you look at that period of American life, the mainline Protestant denominations were very much in the driver's seat, not only as it turns out of American Protestantism, but also of American foreign policy to a considerable extent. And you're looking also at two presidents, Harry Truman and Dwight David Eisenhower, who played roles on the world stage that can hardly be exaggerated in terms of the 20th century, but whose interests and theistic concerns are largely unknown and may even have been largely assumed by the people who worked most closely with them. But now, with so many documents from the National Security Council and the highest levels of government being declassified after the end of the Cold War, what becomes very apparent is the fact that theology was at the center of it. And as Will M. Bowden argues in his book, Americans had little idea that that theology actually originated, of all places, in the White House. One of the things this work by Will M. Bowden underlines is the fact that theology is always present in a worldview, in one way or another. Some theology, good or bad, healthy— Orthodox or unorthodox? For that matter, in terms of theology, it can be of any number of variants. But questions of ultimate concern, of the existence of God, of worldview conflicts between theism and atheism, all these things have a great deal to do with the actual decisions being made of government, not only in terms of domestic affairs, but also of foreign policy. And when it comes to an explicit theological analysis, the distinction between the Christian realism of Reinhold Niebuhr And, for instance, the very different biblical realism of the National Association of Evangelicals points to an overlay of common concerns, but also a very sophisticated and urgently important divide over some of the most basic issues of theology that turned out, by implication also to be, issues of foreign policy. There are all kinds of things to be considered here. The absence of an eschatology means that this world is all that you can have as concern, and therefore Reinhold Niebuhr, had no great hope on the other side of his realism. It was simply a matter of political life doing the best it can in order to ameliorate and alleviate problems, but with very little hope of anything long-term that would be much better than what came in the past. On the other hand, you have the overblown expectations of the secular utopians. And in response to that, American evangelicals need to realize that many of the issues being debated in the Cold War are the very issues we're debating today. Then again, there are some crucial distinctions. The main conflict in terms of American foreign policy today is not so much between godless atheism of the Soviet Union. That is now not so much a potent force. The atheism of, for instance, communist China may be official, but it is hardly a major worldview threat in terms of the global scene. Rather, it's another form of theism that now forms the main challenge, and that being the challenge of Islam. A very different political context, a very different global challenge, but one that makes exceedingly clear what was perhaps less clear to Americans during the Cold War. Theology matters, and regardless of who's sitting in the White House, that president is inescapably a theologian. We are indebted to Will M. for making clear how that works. Thanks again to my guest, William M. Bowden, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to my new book, The Convention to Lead. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than administrative skill, who develop more than mere vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need to develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moller.